0: my agenda here today is to convert you from a Western worldview to a more indigenous worldview that, and because I think that's the only thing that is going to save us on this planet. In other words, you cannot get to where we need to go from uh, a Western worldview and, um, and, and yet indigenous people lived on the planet, you know, with some sort of, uh, solidarity with the earth and all earth creatures, um, for thousands and thousands of years without destroying their futures.
1: That's indigenous elder, Dr. Randy Woodley. And this is The Emerging Future. Welcome to the Emerging Future Podcast. I'm your host, Joel DeYoung. This is the podcast where we go long form and deep to hear wisdom from the curious, compassionate, and courageous co creators of our desired and emerging future. Today, we hear from Dr. Randy Woodley, who's a Katoa Cherokee teacher, songwriter, poet, activist, former pastor, missiologist, and historian. And he's also a lover of plants. And he lives with his wife, Edith, co-sustaining the Alahay farm in the Willamette Valley in Newburgh, Oregon, where we had this conversation. And that's where they utilize and they teach principles of permaculture, biomimicry, and traditional indigenous knowledge. And so their farm, the Alahae Farm, seeks to be a model of regenerative agriculture and animal husbandry systems that support human needs while improving the earth and all creation, inhabiting the web of life. And he says, we desire to live in harmony with the land. Elahe is a Cherokee Indian word representing harmony, balance, well-being, and abundance. And those are just a few attributes of the indigenous worldview, which Randy says is a necessary worldview forgetting where we want to go in this time of ecological disaster. So we get into a lot in this conversation. We hear Randy's story. We hear different transitions in his life. Um, We hear his relationship to the Jesus tradition, um, to the indigenous tradition. We hear about his teaching. We hear about his relationship with plants and much, much more. Um, make sure you head over to the website Lyman dot L I M E N space, where I've listed um, all of Randy's uh, connections and where you can find out more about him. So he recently released a podcast with Bo Sanders called "Piecing It Together." Um, he has a handful of different books and have links for those. I have a link to uh, his ministry, his farm, Alehay Seeds, where you can buy seeds from Randy, um, and a lot more. So head over to lyman.space slash emergingfuture and you'll find all the links to Randy and his work. So with that, I give you my conversation with Indigenous Elder, Dr. Randy Woodley. One of the things that seems to be a through line with uh, the Native American tradition is storytelling. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about that a little bit earlier. You can get into the concepts. You can get into the philosophy. You can get into um, those kinds of conversations, which I love too. But stories are what we tend to... um, Ma- they're magnets right and we, we gravitate toward them and, and we remember them yeah. and so I was thinking in, uh, about stories in your life or, or stories that have really impacted you along the way I know there are a lot of them and I'm just wondering if there's a story right now in your life in this time that you might be able to share um, that's really resonating with you
0: yeah well I, I'm probably the most pressing thing that's happening in our generation is what's happened ecologically. And, um, and I, know I've got lots of my own stories and I've got, um, other people's stories that I've heard, which are, you know, all cool, precious, good. Um, but I, I think there's a story, um, uh, uh, a Ketua story that, um, sort of, um, pieces together a little bit of what i see happening in the world right now Mm -hmm. so um would you like me to tell that story i love to hear the story okay so um they say there was a time when our uh, our people were uh, beginning to just kill um without concern for the animal only grabbing the best parts of the meat and and uh, kind of leaving the rust to rot and not being thankful and all that sort of thing. And so that's the, the, the sort of disaster, the ecological disaster. But it was really not a problem with the environment. It's a problem with the people, right? And when you say our people, who are you talking about? So this story is about our Katua people, our okay. Cherokee people. And, um, and so um, the animals decided, well, we're not going to put up with this anymore. You know, they can't keep doing that. And uh, so they got together and they decided, you know, let's, let's uh, decide how we're going to get back at these humans for what they're doing. So they talked and the, the, the bears decided they wanted to lead the council. And what's kind of funny, um, insider perspective on this is to understand in Cherokee way, a bear is the closest relative to a human being. Hmm. And so you, when you're talking about bears sometimes like this, you're really talking about humans, right? <laughs> So, um, so the bears decide they're gonna uh, uh, kind of come up with a way to do this and structure it. And there, so the bears begin to ask, well, how are they killing us? Well, they're killing us with bows and arrows. Well, then, then we're gonna kill them back with bows and arrows. And so they decide to try and make bows and arrows. And so they, they do that. And then it's like, well, somebody's got to come up with some string. What do we do? Well, they use, they use our, you know, sinew for string and so one of the bears said okay well i'll give my life so that we can get enough sinew to have string so we can kill them and make our bows and kill them so um so they start to do that and they got their bows all made and they began to to fire uh in practice and and uh because bears have such long claws the arrows were just going every which way and <laughs> you know they were shooting the squirrel tails and they were the, the rabbits were hopping around trying to dodge arrows and it was kind of pandemonium so so they said well you know we're gonna have to cut off all our claws in order to learn how to be good shots and so the bears kind of thought and they were smart enough to think well if we do that we won't be able to make a living no more because you know we scratch in logs and the dirt and everything else with these big claws so they finally the rest of the animals said you know what bears you know thank you for come up with your ideas let's get some some more ideas and uh so they decided hey put the inchworm in charge of this meeting so the inchworm began to to uh say you know "Uh, what do you guys think and so everybody started putting out ideas and finally they come with this idea well let's put disease on the people so they come up with all kinds of diseases they came up with smallpox and chickenpox and measles and mumps and you know, all kinds of, uh, of things that would, uh, begin to kill the humans, influenza. And, uh, and so, uh, they even came up with something called menstrual cramps at that point. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the inchworm thought that was so funny that he fell off the log he was on and, and fell on his back. And they said, he's been crawling that way ever since. <laughs> so, um, so they, they began to put these diseases on the people and the people began to die. And so, um you know first it was the you know the older people and then the the small children and and then it began to work its way into finally the the men the warriors were beginning to die and then even the strong women began to die and you have to understand we're a matrilineal society so our women are the strongest of all Mm -hmm. of us right so and then when all the strong women began to die um they finally said well there's not going to be any more of us you know we got to stop this somehow so they sent a delegation to the animals, to the animal council, and begged them, please, you know, will you take these diseases away from us? And they said, no, we won't. We don't forgive you. And, uh, and so they just kept dying. And this whole time, the plants were watching this. And the plant people began to feel sorry for the human beings. And so they, they began sending dreams uh, to the humans. And they would, for each dream, uh, they would send a different cure to a different person, so to one they would send a cure for you know rheumatoid arthritis and to another they would send a cure for um, influenza and and they would teach them in those dreams how to pick the plant and how to make that medicine that would cure them all and so uh, so the people began to to uh, uh, to use those and they began to get healed and uh, and so even though half the population died um, there was still half left and so At that point, um, the animals and the plants and the uh, um, people, they came together and they said we have to make a pact with each other, that we listen to one another um, and that we all fulfill the purpose that we have. And so if a human being wants to kill an animal in order to feed their family, the first thing they need to do is they they sing a song of gratitude and thanks before they go out and uh, and protection. And so uh, that the animal would give itself to the, the human being, that it wouldn't take the life of one it, that wasn't supposed to, but the animal that decided to give itself to that hunter um, would do so. And then when they killed the animal, that they would use all the parts, not just the best parts, and uh, find a way to use the whole body of the animal, and uh, that they would also put some tobacco down on the ground, and they would thank the earth for providing everything that comes out of the earth, and, and they would thank Creator for the ultimate, you know, a gift of life, and then they would thank the animal, and uh, and so they decided that that's what they do, and in, in order to show gratitude. And so today we do that before we pick a plant, before we you know after we kill an animal, all of those things we put tobacco down to to not only thank that animal, thank the earth, thank Creator, but to remind ourselves that when we take something, we have to give something back. And so um, uh, the result was, you know, we we feel that for every disease there is a plant cure for every kind of disease that a person can get. But you understand that that picture and that story creates a symbiosis between, you know, all the elements of creation Mm -hmm. that they work together uh, for the common good of of everything. Mm -hmm. And um, that's what's missing today. And uh, the earth has, um, uh, I guess in a way you might say almost declared war. On human beings, Uh, once again, we're seeing this because, uh, you know, with the constant uh, rise uh, of both frequency and severity of um, all the, um, uh, quote unquote, natural disasters that are occurring, forest fires, flooding, uh, earthquakes, um, uh, hurricanes, um, tornadoes, etc. And you've been personally tracking this. Yeah, I've been tracking this since 1999 and the billions of dollars spent and it's just a constant. Uh, upward trajectory of what's what's occurring you know like hottest years on record hot and then then you have a break and then the next year is the hottest year next and you know I think the uh, you know like the the last five years have been three of the hottest years recorded in history and um, so it's it's a a just a constant um, um, us fighting this um, symbiotic relationship that human beings are deciding that um, they know best. They're going to exploit the earth to the point where uh, it's best for them and not think about what's best for everything. And uh, that common good is so important when we think about um, the future generations, especially, Mm -hmm. but even having a quality life now. And so if we end up um, continuing on this path, you know, uh, we may not be here to finish the course of humanity, you know. Mm -hmm. But you think the earth will survive? Earth's going to survive. She's going to take care of herself. Um, but right now, the the Earth, I think the wisdom of the Earth, if mm-hmm. you will, Mother um, Earth, is to um, knock off the, the top primary consumer, you know, of energy. And we are, you know, we've moved from uh, what I explain um, in other places uh, from uh, tertiary consumers to become a primary consumer of energy. And um, that's that's not our place, and the earth knows that. And so um, we're we're literally being, you know, uh, shaken and spewed out and and swallowed up by earthquakes and mudslides and all the rest. Um, So the earth has a a, you know path to survive.
1: Mm -hmm. There are there are a bunch of things that came up in that story. Um, You know, one of them with. With all of these fixes, you know, where the, the animals are trying to fix the problem and mm-hmm. and they're really starting to, you know, uh, you know, put a magnifying glass on the problem mm-hmm. instead of really understanding the relationship that's going on. And it, it brought up that, that idea of treating the symptoms and not really getting to kind of root problems or, or root beliefs. Or, yeah. or things that are, are kind of driving their behaviors. I don't know. Is that bringing up
0: anything for you? Well, it, it's just that it takes um, – uh, there's a – you have to look at things in a very holistic way. So the Western worldview is very uh, compartmentalized, mm-hmm. um, it, uh, and there's some advantage to being compartmentalized. You can – what I call extrinsic compartmentalization – Uh, as opposed to relational compartmentalization, which is what I think an indigenous worldview presents. But extrinsic compartmentalization uh, is able to take apart every segment of the whole down to the nth degree, right? And so um, that's great because Mm -hmm. you can really focus and study on things. The problem with the Western worldview is that the West— treats people as if they are that part rather than the whole. Mm -hmm. So, um, for example, I have a podiatrist, I have a neurologist, I have a cardiologist, you know, I have a general practitioner, et cetera. And, um, each of those sort of, uh, you know, there are systems in place or trying to be set in place where they can treat us more holistically, but it's still not there yet. And so, you know, my cardiologist might, might wants a list of my medicines, but they don't understand how it interacts with my peripheral neuropathy. Mm-hmm. Right, and they don't understand how it interacts with my neurology, and that, and so all of these pieces. Just as one example in the medical field, we do it in education as well. We do it in religion as well, um, and we we compartmentalize these things, and then begin treating. Uh, the problem as a part, as opposed to treating, putting the whole back together. What I call putting Humpty Dumpty back together again, mm-hmm. and and treating whole people as whole people in a whole context, in a whole world, in relationship to all these things. And so, um, uh, you know, the it wasn't until the plants got involved that uh, basically that they kind of completed the circle, and now they could all come together. And um, look at the whole picture of what was going on. I think that's kind of the lesson learned in, in that part of that story.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, my dad's a general practitioner back in Chicago, and he he you know has he's been practicing for thirty five years, I think. And his way of treating, you know, used to be very holistic mm. because it the system allowed for that right. that kind of treatment. Now everything's gone to computers. And it's gone to these medical records, and it's gone to clicking the right buttons mm-hmm. for the right uh, prescriptions, or right. F- or, f- or for the right you know diseases or, or whatever. So it really it, it compartmentalizes the entire treatment process, even yeah. the the examination process and the treatment process. Yeah. Um, and it's and it's it's sucked that whole uh, relational um, understanding of. Well, this your your heart is actually part of a system yeah. right uh, yeah. and, and all of these things are working together and it, it might be a number of different things and not everybody um, who has pink eye you know is is going to be treated the same well that's probably a bad example but you know heart <laughs> disease and stress and all yeah, of, there's so yeah. many there's so
0: many factors well, that go into that yeah and psychologically and you know it's just um, so in our old way my understanding is um, I've never been treated by any of our old uh, shamanistic people or medicine people. Um, Well, none in this way. But, you know, my understanding, it was, you know, when that person comes to visit, they see all the members of the family. Mm -hmm. They ask about the relationships between the members of the family. They ask what you've been eating. They ask um, what uh, uh, any medicines you've taken. They ask what kind of dreams you've been having they you know and they explore all areas in a holistic way right mm-hmm. and then decide on what the treatment is i think um in the western world uh, there was a book all oh, quite a long time ago it's probably 30 years ago uh paul ternier do you remember that name no. uh, he wrote a book called he was a a, a medical doctor paul ternier and he wrote a book called the listening ear and it was a challenge to the medical professions to to listen to the patients when they come in you know and and um that that if you listen really listen uh as the person begins to share they'll start to tell you more about really what's happening the stresses in their lives the you know all that sort of thing The the things that doctors just don't have time now to do because you know there's a pharmaceutical rep outside waiting at the door saying here try this Mm -hmm. and so um uh that uh that idea sort of gets close to the indigenous idea of a holistic treatment right so Mm -hmm. that uh so that you can be treated as a whole person and not just a, um, a part uh, or a bunch of parts. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah,
1: I want to talk to you more about the indigenous worldview, um, because I feel that when when you're talking about the whole, and you start you start uh, widening your lens, and I've had this in in some of my recent podcast conversations, like with Jeremy Lent, he he explored. Um, the history of humanity through a cognitive lens, and and basically his conclusion was that the worldview is what informs all of the behaviors and all the actions and and the values and 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 basically you start with, with the worldview, and yeah. and so so it really articulates hey we've got a worldview problem here right that we've got to shift and if we don't shift that then we're just talking about parts that's and, right and things and 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 this we're never gonna have. The kind of shift that that we're desiring.
0: I absolutely believe that. When I speak, oftentimes the first thing I'll say, the first thing out of my mouth, is, um, you know, to, to unload all any uh, hidden agendas. My agenda here today is to convert you from a Western worldview to a more indigenous worldview. Hmm. And that, and because I think that's the only thing that is going to save us on this planet. So, yeah, we. In other words, you cannot get to where we need to go from uh, a Western worldview. Mm-hmm. And um, and and yet, indigenous people lived on the planet, you know, with some sort of uh, solidarity with the earth and all earth's creatures, uh, for you know thousands and thousands of years without you know destroying their futures. So, mm-hmm. uh, well, let's talk about the shift. Okay, let, let me first give a qualification. Um, you know, there are indigenous worldviews. Right. Okay. And there are Western worldviews, mm-hmm. and so um, you know, I, I certainly don't mean to talk uh, as if I have the indigenous worldview, or or talk, uh, make a case against the Western worldview. I'm only talking about what I've experienced in my own life mm-hmm. and uh, my limited understanding, and um, and so it's sort of a um, you know just a qualifier that uh, this is not the Some of the conversation. Got it. Okay, disclaimers
1: out of the way. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, I read read one of your articles, you know, about about Western worldview and the characteristics of the Western worldview and particularities and the indigenous worldview. And there's a wonderful graph in that. Mm That I'll post along with this because it it's too detailed to kind of talk about every one of these, but it it really um, provides a nice list of hey, this is kind of where we're operating as a whole, and and would you say that Western the Western worldview has become the global worldview?
0: Yeah, I, I think that's you know in the same way that. Um, uh, sort of white supremacy, and white normalcy is the standard in America. Uh, we've sort of combined that with the Western idea, and now that's become, um, whether it's white folks or not, that Western hegemony that's present here in America has now become sort of the uh, one of the, the standards that we're trying to impose on the whole world, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. And, and its foundation is dualism. Right, so right. so w- we get rid of the dualism, everything else crumbles. and so that's really the the big ticket item mm-hmm. um, is that and, but it's it's throughout our philosophies and our religions and our educational system and our medical practices and, and everything is just built on this foundational dualism. Mm-hmm. A binary worldview. Uh, uh, the binary worldview comes out of that.
1: yeah. yeah. Um, so a non-dual way, that takes a lot of practice.
0: Um, maybe a lot of experience. Yeah. Practice and experience. Yeah, yeah. Experience. Yeah. Um, it, I think it, it could also just, um, just spending time in an indigenous community, mm-hmm. um, breaks that down too. Mm-hmm. So, and sometimes I've had like, so I've been running a, a Native American ceremony called the sweat lodge okay. for 30 years now. And, uh, and I've actually had people, sort of knocked the the first peg out of their dualistic worldview by just coming in a sweat lodge, you know. And all of a sudden they were like, this was such a spiritual experience, but it was physical and it was, you know, mental and it was emotional and it was, you know, f- all this going on at the same time and they've never experienced that in like a church or something like that. And yeah. so, so to them that's like, you know, this is like, this this was a whole thing that they experienced and, and it's their first experience with that, right? Yeah. So.
1: Yes, um, when you experience something that's non-dual, it it's it, it's like it's a full body understanding, yeah. right? It's a it's all encompassing, so it's like you can't think your way out of a dualistic way of thinking, right? right. I guess that's the challenge, right? Because you can you can talk and you can. And you can talk about it for days, but unless you experience a non-dual experience, it you can't really comprehend it.
0: Right. So, so the um, the way that we talk about it also lends the to the dualism, lends itself to dualism. Right. So, uh, you know, we if we really examine and talk, and so I'm going to give you examples. Since I mentioned the sweat lodge, I'll talk about this. So, um, I used to. Uh, I've had so many sweats. I've had, you know hundreds and hundreds maybe thousands over the years and uh, each one's a little different and um, we've always had different kinds of people in. you know they're not been all native you know there's always been you know people visiting and and white folks and others westerners and so um at one time I noticed that um this this one guy a non-native guy white guy went in and And he wanted to know, like, everything, you know, how hot hot the temperature is, uh, how many rocks I use, um, you know, um, was the water uh, from the faucet or was that special water, you know, uh, on and on and on and on. And so, and I'm like, I feel really uncomfortable answering these, but I wasn't quite sure why, you know, and and, uh, um, the same guys had been actually up at Lake Tahoe with us and they began to ask us, like, how, you know, uh, is this, how deep is it, how cold is it, you know, I'm like what is all the head stuff, you know? But yeah. anyway, it was weird. <clears throat> well, so then we had another one later in the week, and and uh, uh, one of the guys who wasn't able to go the first time came. And so I was sitting on the other side of the fence, and I was listening to him telling. he was just talking like an expert. Like, you know, you know, here I'd been doing hundreds and hundreds of these, and I'm still learning, right? But this guy was an expert, uh-huh. you know, and telling this other guy, you know, well, it's going to get to about this temperature. and You know, they yep. use so-and-so rocks, and they, you know. And I'm like, what the heck's going on here? And I, I thought that through, and and uh, and then uh, and I thought, you know, that guy didn't even enjoy the experience so mm-hmm. much because he was trying to think his way through it, right? So he was trying to be that duelist during the ceremony, mm-hmm. and just have this going on in his head, you know, and um, and so from that point on, and that was a long time ago, I said, I uh, I tell people who are not familiar with sweater hadn't been in, I'd say, you know. Um, you can't ask any questions until after the sweat is over and we're sitting around eating together. Mm. And then you can ask me whatever you want, and uh, um, and they're always like, "Well, why?" And I said, "Because it detracts from your experience." And and for them, it was like, you know, how could I have an experience without thinking my way through it? You know, it's a scary thing for a Western mind, mm-hmm. but uh, it, somehow it works, right? And mm-hmm. so, um, so most times afterwards, people are so enthralled with their experience they're like you know they don't have questions anymore so it Mm -hmm. doesn't matter how many rocks there was it doesn't matter how hot it it was just the experience that mattered yeah so tell me tell me a little bit more about the experience
1: like i'm not interested in how hot the rocks are (laughs) (laughs) like but i I really don't know i mean i saw what what did you call it your sweat sweat lodge lodge Uh in in the backyard and uh, you know what what is that (laughs) <laughs> i mean what do you what is that i've never experienced a lodge where we sweat yeah <laughs> okay next question yeah so you know it's our
0: uh we call it um in the native way in you, you know anybody can have their own personal family one but in order to lead open ones it's kind of like being a a church we in fact sometimes they call it the first church in america mm. um the first uh, they sometimes they call it the the womb of the earth that we we go in Heat rocks up outside, and then uh, there's this canvas-covered, uh, we call convicts, um, um uh, willow-framed hut, and it's covered with blankets and tarps. And, and you go in, and, and there's a, a hole in the middle, and you bring in those hot rocks, and the people sit around the circle, and you throw water on it. And, um, you, you know, it steams of mm-hmm. course, and it's dark in there. And then you go around and, and in the way I was taught, there's different sweats and different ways of doing them. But the way I was taught was the first round is a, a prayer round. And the second round is a singing round. And the third round is a sharing round. You share from your heart. And, um, and then the last round is up to the sweat leader and, kind of as they've judged the situation, like if it's been real serious and a lot of trauma and things, and they may kind of make it very light and joke and tell stories or, you know, there's just it's up to the, or you might have like a warrior's round or there might need to be need for a particular, like a women's round. And sometimes they're most of the sweats we do are mixed, but um, we also, sometimes I do men's sweats and my wife does female sweats and, and uh, women's sweats. So, um, uh, but most time they're mixed together. And so that one's up to the, the sweat leader to kind of make a decision and, and lead the fourth round that way. And and uh, sometimes you can go out between rounds if it's really hot and then come back in, and we have four rounds. And and um, somebody described it once as um, a combination between a, uh, um, a Swedish sauna and a Baptist Wednesday night prayer meeting. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, – Um, but with a Native American cultural, you know, uh, uh, milieu. So, um, yeah, that's, that's the sweat, you know, last couple hours and usually, and, um, and it's a way of just going in and kind of taking stock of your life and your situations and taking time to, to, uh, think and pray and listen and sing and, or listen to the songs and share one another's hearts. And yeah. Um, you know it's been been a important part of our life for like I said, over thirty years so. mm-hmm. uh, yeah, and you have to be trained in the sweat to lead public sweats. You have to be mentored and and um and given permission to do that in our native way. and so
1: okay, yeah, and do the do the tribes do them differently?
0: I mean, yeah everybody does them different yeah. and, and even the um different families in the tribes sometimes doing differently so mm-hmm. um, in different tribes so and they're not every n- not uh, endemic to every native tribe I mean some people did them some did derivations of that uh, up mm-hmm. north they in Alaska they have something called a steam um down in our uh, neck of the woods in the southeast they had something called the oshi, which is a good house. Which is half buried underground, and different people had different ways, and some didn't have anything like that. So mm-hmm. it's kind of like Christianity; everybody kind of practices it
1: differently, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. That was a bad transition, but um, I did want to. I did want to ask you though. How? I mean, as a an an indigenous elder, how did you come to um, Christianity? And because you do work in kind of these christian circles and it's it seems like um these things don't overlap Um, oh okay and so so first i I just want to know how like you're a little bit of your background like how how did you how did you come to this where did you grow up and when was this introduced to you okay and then
0: so yeah, yeah first of all um yeah people are starting to call us elders Okay. and so what we're comfortable with is being like junior elders <laughs> we, we we don't think of ourselves as elders right but um, uh, but uh, I guess when you start getting as much uh, gray hair as Edith and I are starting to get you know when you start to turn silver they start thinking of you that way right so um, and uh, um, and so I I come you know <laughs> a long time ago uh, as I was born um, I come from um, very, uh, uh, mostly poor kind of background. My, my, um, mother and father are both mixed blood Cherokee Indians. Um, and, um, my mother's side, I knew about growing up and knew who my ancestor was. Uh, he was a, a leader. Um, and, uh, um, and, and I, of course I had to find out more about him as I got older and I've been kind of the family genealogist since like probably age 12 okay so i always listen to the the older people talk about stories and who did what and how they know what and and so um so i kind of kept that took that mantle on and but my uh my my uh mother's people um were moved uh so many times uh in those generations because of um the government's um inability to keep its treaties and things that they finally sort of fled um, the, the Cherokee country and became um, coal miners in Alabama, um, and then so her, my mother, was raised in a coal mining camp. Okay. Uh, I'm the first of three generations, the, our generation, to not be coal miners. Um, so we come from people who were, you know, exploiting the earth, which is often the case. You know, if you're being exploited, and you've been exploited. Then you end up exploiting something else, and and they exploited the earth. Of course, at the, those days I'm not sure if they understood what was going on, but mm-hmm. but uh, everything was run by coal. My uh, I am proud to say on that note that my um, grandfather uh, helped to uh, was an organizer and helped bring in the unions, the United Mine Workers down in Central Alabama, <clears throat> which was a dangerous job at the time. And um, so I know those stories, and we used to watch my uncles come in from the coal mine and my grandfather and. And uh, they would be so covered with coal dust that you couldn't tell which one was which. And us kids would guess, you know, is that Uncle Sambo? Is that <laughs> Uncle Jimmy? You know, uh, and th- try to figure out who was who before they went and washed up, you know. And uh, so, so and then my dad's family were farmers um, and uh, cut logs. And they did, you know, my grandfather was a constable, I think, for a while. Just whatever you did to make men- ends meet. These were both during the Depression so my dad you know reminds me of you know when he was uh, 10 years old he would go cut logs with his grandfather all day long for a dollar or with his dad all day for a dollar you know mm-hmm. and um so um nobody had it too good down there in the south and my mother's from Alabama and my dad's from Mississippi okay and um if you're from Mississippi you don't say it with those syllables you say mississippi, mississippi. and uh, so uh a couple syllables short um so uh, as my dad likes to say, uh, he's, uh, by the way, he's 93, going to be 94 soon. And my mother's 91, going to be 93 soon. Really? Or 92 soon, yeah. Where are they? So, so they're in Florida now, unfortunately. Not, not where they want to be, but where they ended up, unfortunately. But uh, um, another story for another day, I guess. But uh, uh, my dad says uh, in, in Mississippi, they taught him the three R's. Of reading, writing, and road to Detroit. <laughs> and uh, so that? they went up with a great migration to okay. uh, the north and the Rust Belt. And uh, we lived just south of Detroit in Ypsilanti, Michigan. A um, uh, little sort of like the Ypsilanti, sort of what they say, the armpit of Ann Arbor. Okay. And, uh, and Willow Run, where I grew up, is the armpit of Ypsilanti. So it was a rough place to grow Double up. Double armpit. Yeah. <laughs> um, highly uh, um, um, racialized communities, mm-hmm. um, the poorest of the poor moved up north to get jobs in the factories. Mm-hmm. Um, so and that included, you know, black folks, white folks, native folks, anybody in the south who, who had it really bad and just hoped for a better life, kind of a thing, you know. So, so they went up. And so then, um, my dad, after working for a few years for Ford Motor Company, um, started his own business of uh, seat covers uh, rest- restoration. Um, uh, and so he, so which is subsidiary of the auto industry, right? So, right. So he ran a seat cover shop for I think seventeen years. Uh, my so mom, seat
1: gets torn up, bring it to yeah, your dad.
0: Yeah, and repair it or put in new upholstery. You know. Okay. And and then he brought all my uncles and everybody up to work for him there. And so they all, I think every relative we ever had lived with us at some point. You know, my, especially on my mom's side, because they were actually much more poor than my dad's side. Uh-huh. Uh, my mom was raised in a coal mining camp. You know, Wow. As she tells us about when she was. Uh, and when they were little kids in the coal mining camp they got the same thing every year for Christmas they got a, a walnut and an orange and that was their Christmas presents you know um really yeah and, and she's one of thirteen uh, my dad's wow. one of nine so um, uh, so we grew up there I always tell people I grew up in a, a pocket of the south in Michigan uh-huh. so um and uh, do you and learn
1: how to work on seat covers
0: yourself no I never did that my by the time I was a teen preteen my dad decided he wanted to move into um, building homes mm-hmm. and so he became a builder and retired as a builder built homes all his life and I do I did work for him and okay. I, I do know how to do that so <laughs> unfortunately I don't have the the uh, back for it so mm-hmm. um I got out of it and uh, ended up uh, going back to college instead of tearing up uh, sidewalks with sledgehammers and crowbars and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Putting up a roof and doing cement work and all the rest. And But you built this bunkhouse that we're sitting in, right? Kind of, yeah. Remodeled it and kind of built it up with, you know, some help. Um so, yeah, I got a little bit of skills, but I probably nowadays I'd just make a better general contractor because I, <laughs> I know what needs to be done, but I don't have the dexterity and ability to do it, right? So, um, yeah, so so in that environment in Willow Run, Michigan, um, you know, I began, I actually um, uh, was, my, my mother was and dad were involved with a church, a uh, little mm-hmm. American Baptist church there, and um, uh, went to a church camp when I was 10 years old. And uh, um, the the um, and and all this this church was full of highly mixed blood people. So it was a lot of like uh, mixed blood Choctaws and Cherokees and Shawnees and people from the South who were in in each of their families. You know, were, were you know, would get together and and that's kind of who they hung with most of the time. Mm-hmm. So they would get together on Friday nights and they play music and they tell stories and they talk about you know their you know how their grandmother you know, speaks their language and all that. And, you know, and I grew up watching that, but I was kind of like, well, you know, I don't want to be that kind of Indian. You <laughs> know, I want to be the kind of Indian that speaks my language or the kind of Indian that, you know, knows my history, not have to go, well, that was my grandmother, you know? And so, um, in my case would be my grandfather, uh, my mom's dad. But um, uh, so uh, I always kind of had this longing, like, you know, I'm being robbed of something. So, and my identity and uh, so I related as a small kid as being a native even though as you're looking at me you can tell I'm highly mixed blood right so but um, I was always thought of myself in that way and um, and so whenever like uh, there was a lot of transition at our schools and you know kids would move from the reservation to our school and whenever we'd have uh, those Indian families move in I'd hang with them you know and I'd hang around their parents and I'd you Know, make sure that I, I, you know, like I'm trying to find out what my culture is supposed to be, you know, in my young person way. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I uh, by the time I graduated from high school, I had, you know, uh, Indian post radical posters all over my room and was subscribing to the Akwasasni Notes, which was the sort of the radicalized Indian newspaper at the time, and you know, AIM was happening. and. And uh, I guess I was a wannabe aimster. What's AIM? Uh, American Indian Movement. Okay. Um, Wounded Knee happened in 1973, and um, so so yeah, I I was kind of fantasizing myself as you know like, you know, well I'm that's that's me. When in reality, I was just just this person with very limited experience and very mixed blood heritage. Hmm. But um, in the meantime, uh, all that was going on, and then uh, I went to this church camp when I was 10 years old. And this full blood guy was a counselor. His, uh, he's he's an Ojibwe guy, and and I just remember this nickname was Cream Puff. I don't even remember his real name, but uh, <laughs> so um, you know I was fascinated with that guy because it was like you know here's a real Indian, right? Mm-hmm. So we're we're something else. I'm not sure what we are, but he's a real Indian, and um, he took me out and he, he you know he showed me uh, you know how to get uh, sassafras off the you know root beer and taste out of the sassafras and cut that and show me some plants and things and it was like i think he thought it was you know probably you know fascinating to have some you know 10 year old wandering around following him admiring because he was indian right so Mm -hmm. um so that guy ended up um like uh uh, saying a prayer with me and uh, leading me to jesus and so i came back and i talked about that and everybody's like oh you know it wasn't real you know or whatever and so i'm like okay well so it wasn't until I was 19 years old and I was I had the kind of classic uh, drug experience, rock and roll bands and all that kind of stuff, craziness, overdose, car wrecks, relatives and best friends getting killed. And, you know, uh, all these kinds of sort of things that were happening in the 70s, right, 60s and 70s. So I went through all of that. And then finally, in 1975, I was addicted to meth. And, uh, uh, and I'm sorry, uh, 19. Um, yeah, 1975, and uh, had a horrible year that year. Um, had an overdose. Had uh, my my best friend killed. Um, other people killed around me and drug wow. deals and all those kinds of things that were, you know, kind of normal for me at the time. Anyway. Are you still in Michigan? Yeah, still in yeah. Michigan, and uh, and I end up. Um, um, uh, trying to go to school, but I basically went to school to deal drugs to, to Eastern Michigan University, and uh, and then I was flunking out mid semester. Couldn't even hardly finish a sentence. I was, my mind was so gone, wow. and and uh, and I was trapped. And I felt like you know, hey, uh, there is like this inability to be free to, to you know to rid myself of this thing that's that that I don't want controlling me, right? So I ended up, um, going to, uh, you know, a meeting and a church and, um, you know, kind of classic walk in the sawdust trail, you know, walking the aisle. Um, and I just remember praying and I said, Jesus, if you are real and you can deliver me from this meth, these drugs, um, uh, then I will follow you the rest of my life and I'll never look back. And I think I got up from there an hour. I was by myself, by the way. I just told the people, "Just let me alone to pray," because I knew God was real, you know. And I'd been taught as a little kid, "Well, that's Jesus." So, so I'm like, I can talk to Jesus on my own. So I, I did. And I, you know, hour later, I walked out of that room, and they were wondering what went on. And and all of a sudden, I had this, you know, it was this power experience, and I never wanted to do drugs again. And uh, and I was healed, um, or I was healing, anyway. And so that's why I say my healing really began. And uh, um, so from that point on, I was like, well, how do I do this, you know? Um, Sort of, uh, unfortunately, the the good folks who were trying to help me figure that out, uh, most of them had sort of assimilated or were totally assimilated. And like the Native stuff, well, you know, cut your hair, you know, Don't worry about all that native stuff, you know, take your posters down because that's like a false pride and, you know, just read the Bible. You don't need to be reading these newspapers about Indian, uh, American Indian movement and all these kinds of things. And, and it was sort of, the idea was just be like us, Mm -hmm. right? Which means just assimilate. Yeah. And so I tried to assimilate for several years, um, uh, felt a call to service, to ministry, as you say, um um uh, got myself a three-piece itchy wool suit and some <laughs> white man ties and and uh, tried to do that I was became a flaming evangelist and uh, eventually I I realized there's something wrong with the story here mm. and um uh and so I I had this transitional period I moved to Denver um and uh, and during that period, I began to, to say, well, what does it really mean to be Native and, and to follow Jesus and and, um, uh, and, and to, to have a Native identity? What is that about? And and uh, so I began to question a lot of things. And, and what does it mean to, you know, this, you know, what's the problem with this evangelism? Why do I feel so bad about it when I do it, you know? and, and Because they tell me that's what you do if you, you're a good Christian, right? Mm. Well, what I didn't realize was that the, you know, if you're going to be a, a, a true Christian, you can't follow Jesus. So uh, in fact, um, I, you know, what the way I was taught as an evangelical, if you will, <clears throat> the, um, uh, following, uh, Jesus is the antithesis of being a Christian. Um, and so, um, you know, kind of figured out somewhere along the way, maybe a, a decade ago or so that, um, that following Jesus is very different than being a Christian. That that it, you probably there are some people who can be a Christian and follow Jesus, but it's extremely difficult hmm. because Christianity has been so immersed with empire mm-hmm. for so long that it's probably irredeemable. So, um, and then I I realized that Jesus didn't come to start a religion. You know, he would just say, "Follow me." Right. Yeah, he didn't come to start Christianity, and so. Um, and so the hierarchy and the dualism and the, you know, the judgments and the, you know, all the the doctrines that, you know, have everybody so afraid and everything, all that stuff is so, you know, like hell and, um, you know, damnation and all the things that they're theologically built into the baked into the bread, built into the system. You know, mm-hmm. that um, that none of that stuff's really true, right? I mean, when you really understand. So I, so I, part of my journey was, you know. I ended up reluctantly then getting a bachelor's degree and reluctantly getting a, eventually getting a master of divinity and reluctantly getting a PhD. And I became the most reluctant academic you can imagine. And, um, but, but I reached the pinnacle and then I got tenure and I've written some books and do some Mm -hmm. articles and blah, blah, blah. Right. And, and so what I found out was, you know, uh, basically, um, it's just like any other sort of corporate structure that, that there were. Things that occurred along the way that solidified um, power, Hmm. and and that power has been used over people for so long that they become comfortable with it and they'll even oppress each other with it. But the truth is, is that none of that has anything to do with Jesus, Mm
1: -hmm. yeah. And you were talking about Christianity, so basically, a a system of, of power embedded in what that is what exactly. that currently is and academia mm-hmm. and, um,
0: with a hierarchy built into that whole thing. Right. And well, and even the, just the way that we, we learn in the educational system. So the, the idea was, so, so I was out actually doing what we called ministry, what I now call service, mm-hmm. doing service in my community in so many places in so many ways and, and learning how to work with people, Mm-hmm um, and work with cultures for so long. Um, and then I kind of get some academic degrees and then I do that some more and then I get so, um, but the traditional route is go to college, you know, then go get a master's degree in whatever your area of specialization is. And then, um, and then go do a, a, a maybe you do an internship during that time at some point. Then you go on and get a Ph.D. in one specific area of that, so you've got more knowledge than anybody in that area. Mm-hmm. And you might have gone through you know, high school, uh, bachelor's, master's, and Ph.D., and still never really practiced what it is that you're supposed to be the expert at. Mm-hmm. right? So that's the Western way, mm-hmm. where the indigenous way is you, know, you, you get with someone who's been doing this most of their life, and you don't ask a lot of questions and you basically watch them, and then they tell you, you know, to do things. Now you can do this. Now you can do this. Now you're ready to do this on your own. Hmm. And that's a whole different system of learning. Yeah. So. Well,
1: mentors, mentorship. Um, so, did you have
0: indigenous elders mentoring you? I have. I've I've been really fortunate along the way to to have uh, deeply. Um, uh, people of dignity, uh, with deep dignity along the way who have helped me out, um, in different places where I've lived. Most of them have passed on now. Hmm. Um, but some of these were very old people, um, people who, um, withheld judgment and were tolerant to a fault of others and, and who, um, I would ask permission, like, Hey, do you think it'd be a good idea to do this or that? And, and, um, before I would do anything, but, but then I take the heat for it, right? So they didn't. So um, people who were born in teepees, people who, you know, were um, exposed to what they would say are the real elders, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and so because of that, um, I in whatever I do, I try to think about what they would say about what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, that's the way my wife and I try to live our lives to, so that we would please those elders who have been so uh gracious and helpful to us along the way
1: wow what a gift
0: yeah it has been it has been a real gift we miss them terribly but we can only remember recall them in our minds and remember our conversations Mm -hmm. yeah did you learn about plants from one of those people yeah i've learned some about plants in different places we've lived Uh um so we've lived in a lot of different places and been around a lot of different kinds of Indians, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, um, and so I think in every place I was fortunate to have people, because I have an interest in plants, mm-hmm. to take me aside and say, you know, use this one for this. Here's how you, when you harvest it and how you harvest it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, one of the things in common, no matter whether it was in the southeast or whether it was in Oklahoma or whether it was in um, Nevada or where or or even here where we are in the northwest one of the commonalities of all those people who have helped us to with the plants they always say something like now if you don't pray over it it won't work
1: oh really yeah
0: which is back to that holistic idea it's like you know this is not just something physical this is something spiritual Mm -hmm. right and that breaks the dualism spirituality yeah yeah um you you just mentioned earlier too about
1: asking permission, and th- when you were g- giving us the tour of your farm, you're talking about asking permission of the plant, mm-hmm. you know, before you, before you break it off, mm-hmm. and, um, yeah, I, I just think that asking permission is not something that's very common. <laughs> these days really nobody, nobody else, else does that
0: <laughs> well i mean it, you mean when they build a house and they cut those trees down they don't ask permission before that
1: that, ha- that that is currently happening across the street from our house wow and there is a a big there's a four-unit development and there was a big cedar along with some maples right mm-hmm. there and so you know we investigated the plans and we like it looks like those are coming down. Um, and then sure enough, they, they were going to come down. So, you know, we kind of inquired about that and said, Hey, we, we just want to make sure cause that's a cedar and <laughs> with our work at the green boat, We've been planting hundreds of cedars over the last 10 uh, years. Uh, and it doesn't seem like you should be able to just cut that huge one down.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, yeah. I mean, especially on the hillside and everything it's doing, you know, with, uh, the water and, um, and so it turned out that the city was like, no, they're going to, it's okay. They can cut it down and then they're just going to plant some. So some plant uh, some more. So, some, Somewhere else. Right. right.
0: As if that doesn't affect anything. Right. 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 And then and now our street's flooding, right? Oh, wow. Well, yeah. There you mean, go. just. Absolutely. It's all related. Yeah. And connected.
1: So what's your favorite plant uh, in all of this farm? What's. Right now, what's your favorite plant out of this whole?
0: Um, my favorite right now is the Gietio Coastman squash because of the story behind it. It's an 800-year-old squash, so um, the seeds were revitalized a couple of years ago, and and uh, and it tastes so good. Oh my gosh, it's just like this combination between a sweet potato and a pumpkin, and it's so rich in flavor and you know nutrients, and um, so um, she's my favorite right now.
1: What so, what does it say one more time? Gietio Kosman. Gietio Kosman uh-huh, squash. Uh-huh. So what what time of year do you
0: keep that? Um, it should start coming in probably in the next couple of weeks. Um, be ready.
1: Okay, Mary but, and I will drive back down. Yeah, <laughs>
0: yeah. We still have maybe have some canned from last year. I'm not sure, but uh, yeah. So I, but I have a lot of favorites. I mean, there's a lot of beautiful flowers out here, and um, uh, yeah, I, yeah, I just, you know, love them all.
1: They're great. Yeah. You know, the story you told at the beginning of our conversation, it, there was one part that talked about the plants started speaking. Um, what has that meant to you? Do plants speak to you, and what have what have you learned? Yeah. Um,
0: well, you never seen Little Shop of Horrors? I saw that. <laughs> I, it, that scared me. <laughs> well, that might be happening soon if we don't change our ways. Yeah. So, um, yeah. The plant people are very, um, um, primordial, I guess you would say. Hmm. Um, I think they were probably here first. And, uh, so when they speak to you, it's a, a different experience. And so I don't want to get too mysterious and, you know, come on, let's go. go there. This is crazy. they <laughs> yeah. talk about plants talking to you, but, but, you know, I've, I've had plants speak to me in dreams and, um, and it's a very uh, life changing experience. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. So. Well, I, f- I feel like dream work is coming back into um, acceptance mm-hmm. um, as as a way to um, understand something at a deeper or spiritual level. Can you tell that story?
0: Okay, so well, I've had I've had experiences of dreams where animals spoke to me, right? Okay, but but I had a plant dream that was very different in every sense of the word. It was, I woke up mesmerized and terrified and humbled, especially humbled to the degree that I probably had never been before. And so I used to, um, uh, say that we were healing this land. That was our job. We were here to heal the land and, and this land that we're on. And, and, uh, uh you know, it's, it's surrounded on three sides by monocultural industrial farming of, um, filbert nuts and, and, uh, and so we were trying to restore it, heal it, and uh, and I said that all the time. We're here, you know. Part of our job is to heal the land, and and then I was coming back from New Mexico from a, a conference that we were speaking at, and uh, uh, at the motel room I had a dream, and I woke up and I was startled and I was almost breathless, and and it was a very simple dream, but all the plants, and I don't know if it was here or where it was, but the but the plants knew me, right. Mm-hmm and all the plants spoke to me without saying a word and what they said was we are healing you and i got the message it's that i'm not in control of this thing you know Mm -hmm. that i'm a guest walking through here and um my job is to help them do what they do right Mm -hmm. to to become a co-laborer uh with the with my surroundings and with the plants and and to learn and to to help uh help them heal me. And mm-hmm. I think that's not just like physically through you know plant medicines but it's also just being with them and and uh, watching them you get you know you have all these senses right with with uh, sight and smell and sound and all these things and and all of those are an experience with your plants you know.
1: Mhm. So man, that was yeah. a gift.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and it was it was it changed my life and how I, you know, I I thought I was there and I wasn't there, and uh, now I've learned that you're never quite there. <laughs> so I always remember that, and so uh, and so I'm humbled to just be a part of the of the circle here, not to to think I'm in charge of the circle.
1: Uh huh. Yeah, that is humbling. Mm-hmm. I know we touched on this just a little bit, but. Um, Academia. Mm-hmm. So you're you're a professor at a George Fox University.
0: Uh, George Fox University and uh, Portland Seminary, which used to be called George Fox Evangelical Seminary, now it's called Portland Seminary. And my card reads, distinguished <laughs> professor of faith and culture, director of intercultural and indigenous studies.
1: Okay. <laughs> so what are you teaching
0: (laughs) (laughs) all the exotic stuff (laughs) Uh uh-huh so I teach uh I've I've taught uh, up until recently I've taught American church history um I'm teaching the essentials of theology I'm teaching a class called reconciliation um teaching um uh faith and social action um Yeah, world religions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are some of the courses I teach.
1: Mm -hmm. Anything about racism? Oh, uh,
0: um, my favorite course is called. uh, uh, I'm just about ready to go back on contract next week, so I got to start remembering this stuff. (laughs) But um, uh, basically, it's about ecology and. Eco theology, basically. That's oh, yeah. Okay. Eco theology course. And so I'll be teaching that as well. Um, intercultural studies courses that yeah. uh, we teach, um, anthropology, etc. cetera. Um, and what was the question? Uh, racism. Yeah, so, so I mean, that we, enters every course. It actually. does it? Okay. <laughs> yes. Because it's a present problem in every area. Right. You know, I mean, if you understand it as a separate thing um, mm-hmm. to be studied, then um, you know you can teach it in an academic environment in one class, but if you understand it as as um, embedded in all of the subject matter mm-hmm. um, then you have to mention it in all the subject matter mm-hmm.
1: so. and are you free to talk about that in an academic sure. institution? yeah well,
0: as far as I know yeah. um, nobody's ever come inside my classrooms to hear what I'm teaching <laughs> <laughs> so um, you know, I've I've been accused of students of being a, a reverse racist a number of times. You know, was, okay. there's always at least one white male who basically either says it to me or says it in the evaluations. You know, mm-hmm. but um, but it's the first time they've ever dealt with the notion of white supremacy, right? Mm-hmm. And so they don't know how to react to that except for to accuse me of, you know, and that's the sort of that's the standard fare is to. Problematize the person who's being persecuted. The problematize the person who's been oppressed, and and make it you know like the Indian problem, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the you know there's always been this thing throughout our history where the the government was dealing with the Indian problem. You know, yeah. Well, what's your problem? Well, the problem is you know you've you've taken our land and tried to commit genocide, and you've you know stolen our children, and you know they've been tortured and raped and you know um, uh, murdered and And uh, you've given us disease and everything, and so um, uh, you know, and and then the you know Western society says, well, why is that a problem? You know, you're you're the problem for mentioning it, and so um, so we problematize for resisting our own subjugation, Um, and I think that's a kind of a common Western trait is to say, you know, what? I just I actually just got an email yesterday from someone who said I'm talking with these people and. And they said, you know, well, we understand why older Indians uh, might be mad because of the injustice done. But the new the younger people have been getting everything by the government. And why? uh, Why can't they just get over it? And um, they've had every opportunity to get ahead and they still don't. Hmm. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. You know, I have a long list of what's wrong with that. But, you know, first of all. Uh, it, it problematizes the people are being, you know, hurt and oppressed. Uh, secondly, uh, um, they don't know jack about history because those things are still going on. You know, it's they haven't stopped. So you get over it when it's over. Well, it's not over, um, and 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 even if the overt acts were over the neocolonial um, uh, tentacles that have spread through all of our economic and education systems are, are all there still enacting the same spirit that they always were there for. Um, and so like, you know, I, I, I think I give them four things and I, I, i you know, just shot an email back real quick and I said, well, here's some of the problems with what that, that looks like. Um, and uh, yeah, so, so that kind of stuff's goes on all the time. I hear that all the time. I, I hear the, uh, the uh, you know, well, you're the problem for mentioning this. You know, you don't want to assimilate and be like a white person and, and assimilate to white supremacy and white normalcy. Well, what's wrong with you, you know, um, hmm. as if that's the sum all answer to everything. Or, or you don't want to be a democratic uh, capitalist, you know. Um, you know, you, uh, you, you don't want to achieve the highest educational attainment that you can. You know, what's wrong with you? It's like, you know, th- those things are based on skewed values that are competitive, that are dualistic, that are um, white supremacists, that are um, built uh, to basically accommodate one type of person um, from the very beginning of this country, the white land male, or any person who can assimilate to be enough like that. You know, it doesn't matter what color you are. Mm-hmm. And so if you can... If that's your goal is to assimilate into that, then you can uh, be successful in the eyes of you know that society that deems that successful. There's no room for diversity. you know. There's no room for different experiences. There's no room for an equal setting at the table. It's like only the people who agree get to sit at the table and do this. You right. know? And that's the way it is in academia, too. And I, I didn't want to get my Ph.D., but my wife was wise, and she said, you will be able to speak in areas that other Native people won't be able to. And, um, you'll, you'll be able to, as we say, sit at the big people's table Mm -hmm. and not at the, the children's table, right. To discuss these things. And so, um, and that's, that's true. It's afforded the ability to be able to do that. It's a high responsibility and a burden at the same time. There's always the, um, resistance of assimilation because the probably academia is probably one of the most assimilative processes there are. And especially when you get to teach, you know, it's, uh. You have to really fight hard to resist that temptation, to just give in, and so um, you know it's it's been a balancing act. But I feel like that I've I probably swung too far the other way, where I've just you know kind of offended too many people along the way because I, I was uh, unwilling to submit and assimilate. You know?
1: Mm-hmm. There's constant tension, you know, holding the tension of what you want to say, holding the role. Um, being in that system which is totally immersive
0: so race racism again is baked into the bread it's 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 here and um, and the view that um, it's some sort of a like outlier mm. you know that you know why do we got to talk about this I hear about this all the time like people just you know just you know the problem with the race uh, the the only racism is because you people keep bringing it up you know kind of a thing that, mm. I hear that a lot really yeah. And um you know, if that's not your experience, I guess that's your uh your uh your bailiwick and you get to you get to say that a lot, but um that's not the experience of most people I know. You right. know? So Yeah, I have a friend, Bruce Crawford and one of the things that he does in these kinds of talks when he's sitting with people and and uh he said, he just asked the question, he said, you know, I've had a pretty good uh life how's life been for you you know and uh and you get to hear some stories then right Mm -hmm. so So, i know that
1: you're in a little bit of a transition
0: yeah (laughs) um yeah we're we um um if i was betting money i'd hedge my bets to the fact that i'm gonna be let go this year um based on all the trouble I've caused in trying to create an environment that was equal for everyone. Um, and um, uh, I'm sort of known as that guy, you know, that guy. That, and I'm like, you know, well, if all you white guys would do this, I wouldn't have to say a word, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> i said that to my colleagues, uh-huh. right? So, you know we've seen some changes over the years, but it's been a high cost and I think last year probably was the highest cost for me and I just feel like it's uh um, it's coming you know the axis coming, and so we're sort of looking at you know the possibility that we may have to transition, so mm-hmm. we'll see what happens
1: yeah is you you've been you've made a lot of big transitions in mm-hmm. your life um, so entering into another one how are you feeling
0: um pretty excited um we don't know what's ahead Mm -hmm. but um you know and it it sounds very simplistic and um you know trite probably to a lot of people but this is where you know this is why we follow jesus jesus is a real spirit right so as native people we don't have trouble with spirits Hmm. um it's you know it's just part of life um and uh i'll, I'll tell you a little story um because i'm sure you have listeners who are who are uh, not uh, jesus followers and others and and but it's an interesting story um i'll make it the short version um, this is a long form podcast you can okay so is that we were um my wife and i were doing some training of leaders in lacoutre reservation in wisconsin mm-hmm. and um this is in the middle of february which is very cold up there mm-hmm. and um hayward wisconsin i've been there oh, okay cool yeah. yeah and uh and so i asked the people who brought us you know who gave you permission to be here and Come to find out that no one in the tribe really gave them permission to be there, and so I said, "Well, I can't speak then. I can't speak without permission and blessing of the people who, of the land." And so, so I said, "Okay, well, let's go find out who it is." Um, I went and you know I spent money and I went and got went to uh, the store and I bought what we call an elders basket. We found the person who was sort of the uh, head of the elders council and the traditional Medewan Lodge, uh, which is the r- local religion there, the Ojibwe religion. And, um, we went to that person and we, we asked, um, I gave him that basket of all the different things that, um, you know, and then, um, he accepted it and wanted to know who we were and what we're doing. And he spent probably two hours with us, you know, just talking and talking about the day and the weather. And, but, and he kept talking about, you know, he wanted to know what we were going to teach, you know, he uh, kept talking about his uncle and he said, you know, my uncle was a a uh, Big medicine man, a Gechi Dawin, he's, He says around these parts, and he trained a lot of the leaders in the surrounding areas. You know, he was he was 106 when he died. He said, and uh, he said, my uncle used to say all the time to me. He said, nephew, don't, don't disrespect Jesus because Jesus is a great spirit. And he would say, well, uncle, you know, why you tell me that? He says, well, he says, you know, I talk to Jesus, and he's like, oh. Okay, so don't res- disrespect him. He's a great spirit, you know. And so throughout this talk, um, Gene, this elder, kind of probably said that five or six times, you know. He'd stop after telling us another story and say, and my uncle, I always remember my uncle said, don't disrespect Jesus. He's a great spirit. And, you know, I talked to him. And, and so uh, he got, you know, after a couple hours of talking and listening to this elder, and he'll gain a lot of wisdom by listening, by the way. And uh, um, he... Uh, He says, uh, and so I asked my uncle one time, he said, Uncle, how do you know these stories about Jesus that you tell me all the time? you read the Bible? And he goes, no. He says, I told you, I talked to him. He said, yeah, but did you go to boarding school with a priest teacher? No, I didn't go to boarding school. He said, "Uh, I just talked to Jesus. And he said, yeah, but how do you know all these things? And my uncle looked at me. And, uh, you know, I have to picture this, you know, 106-year-old Ojibwe man who, you know was born in the last century right or not the last the one before (laughs) i guess about that point and uh and he looks at me and he says uh i told you i talked to him and he says yeah but how do you know and he says well he looked at me really funny he said he talks back (laughs) and then the elder looked at us and said so i'm going to pray for you now and then he prayed for us and um you know the the problem with Christianity is that they, they they think they have God, Jesus, however you want to express um, the Creator, uh, in this bubble, in this you know, and that he's captured, mm-hmm. and that he's available only to those people who are Christians, and uh, but I believe like uh, like Jean's uh, uncle that Jesus is a great spirit and that he's available to anybody.
1: Mm. So, yeah, that's beautiful. Mm. Well, speaking of beauty, you're you want to
0: talk about my wife?
1: <laughs> well, look, you do a, a lot of things. You write books. You're you're a teacher. You're a community organizer. You're a farmer. You're an indigenous el- elder. Um, you're junior. El- j- junior elder, <laughs> almost there. A couple more gray hairs. You know, when when do you feel the most
0: beautiful? Hmm. Well, that's a great question, because beauty is important, you know. Um, I like the sound of running water. Um, I like to be with my wife, even if we're just watching a TV show holding hands. Um, I, uh, I like to look at flowers. Um, and I, am a songwriter, so I've written over 500 songs and once in a while, one of those songs just comes together just like mm. naturally. And it's a thing of beauty, you know, um, to see that creativity. I like, uh, as I look at, uh, um, I have this sort of gift of envisioning something that's not there. My problem is that I don't realize that other people can't see what I see. Right. And so when I looked at this farm, for example, this was a you know hundred year old fixer upper, and uh, and I saw the beauty that it could be, and um, and so it takes a lot of work, right? But um, but it's getting there, you know. And so um, to kind of peel away, it's kind of like a they say a sculptor doesn't form this the the sculpture it they they take away everything that's not right. Mm. And so it's kind of that way you peel away the different layers until you get to, to see what's supposed to be there. And, um, yeah, it's a, it's a thing of beauty when you do that, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think it's the same thing to sometimes here. And here's where I'm learning. Here's, here's why I'm just a junior elder because I haven't really learned this yet. But as I look at people and people who I just love to hate, you know, Our president's, of course, one of the, on top of my list. You know, I just just love to hate him. But I have to reimagine, and this is where I I think the words of Jesus are so wonderful. He said, you know, you bless your enemies, don't curse them, Um, you know, pray for them, don't despitefully use them. And um, which not not a lot of people have said that throughout history, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so you have to begin to reimagine people as well. People who mean you harm, people who are ignorant, people who um, uh, could cause a whole lot of uh, chaos and pandemonium and, and things that uh, cause other people harm. And and I think to bless them is to reimagine them in uh, a better light and then hope for the best. Now, you have no control over that, right? Mm-hmm. Except for now, all of a sudden, somebody in this world thinks of them in a different way. And so I'm learning to do that. So, mm-hmm. love. Yeah.
1: Oh, I like that. Yeah. Reimagine them. Mm-hmm.
0: You know, because everybody's been through all kinds of stuff. You know, yeah. I and mean? life is not an easy struggle mm-hmm. uh, for some, most people. Um, and uh, and you know, you get bumped and bruised and cut and, and maimed, and you know, um, you lose sensibilities and you gain other ones that maybe you shouldn't have. And and uh, maybe it just helps takes people reimagining what could be in spite of that to help people get to maybe where they really want to be. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Maybe I have too much faith in humanity, but you know, I certainly don't believe in original sin, you know? Mm -hmm. So, um, I I believe people are mostly good.
1: Yeah. Good at the core. Um, well, I mean, you just touched on, you know, hope and faith too. I mean, those, you need those to, imagine
0: uh, yeah and I have to sometimes it's hard to reimagine myself too right (laughs) right and uh uh so you know it's a gift that I use quite often Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) let's reimagine a different me (laughs) (laughs) just a better me better me I I like what my friend Ray Aldred says uh he he you know every year he sort of at his birthday he uh, Raise a, a Northern Cree guy up in Canada. He's a head of the Vancouver School of Theology Indigenous Programs now. Mm. I was just up there a couple of weeks ago teaching, and, and I'd heard him say this before he reminded me. He said uh, every year on his birthday, he 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 asked his wife, he said, am I less of an asshole than I was last year? <laughs> and if she says yes, he knows he's done some growth, right? So, <laughs> right. <yeah. laughs>
1: a little bit of imagination. Uh, so as you imagine the next year of your life and bettering you and um what are you looking at what are you imagining
0: hmm you know it was a a very difficult year last year um and it's making it very hard for me to return to my work um, because of the racism and because of the lies and the the things that Institutions go through. I mean, um, certainly, Christian institutions aren't the only ones who are, you know, doing that. But um, but it's difficult, and so I'm having trouble so far imagining this year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if I had a magic wand, I'd make it go away. But um, mm-hmm. but I'm I'm still a sort of a I'm a um, uh, both a hopeless romantic for people. Lives are concerned and students and, and their ability to respond uh, positively to um, the good things. And I'm also a, a sort of a, uh, uh, even though I, I'm accused a lot of times of bringing up the negative in everything, I bring up the negative so we can make it positive, right? And, and I'm, I'm all about dealing with it so that we can move in a better direction. So, so I'm kind of a glass half full Person, uh-huh. and always sort of believe like, well, something up around the bend is going to look good here. We're just going to figure it out.
1: Mm-hmm. It's almost like the the sculpture, the the negative that you're talking about mm-hmm. is the stuff that you're getting rid of. Right? Oh, good,
0: not like that. It's yeah.
1: Stuff you're getting rid of. So you just keep dealing with the negative until you've got
0: yeah something exactly something beautiful. So and and you know and I I I don't discount creator in that um, space either in that mm. equation. It's sort of like you know things are surprising, you know now I'm, I'm I have a different theology, and my theology is not one where you know I think my path is determined or that God is going to necessarily intervene or you know cause something because you know I think you know, like as uh, it's, it's my friend Thomas Org says God's not in control, mm-hmm. uh, you know we are, but um God imagines the best possible future for us and tries to help us get get to that place, you yeah know? so
1: what do so. you what are you uh, curious about right now?
0: Oh, let's see. Um, I'm, uh, uh, I guess, I'm curious. The The thing in my life right now that is the looming question for me mm-hmm. is, and it's funny, <laughs> it's nothing that you're going to expect whatsoever. Um, I, uh, I I've been a musician all my life, right? But since I've been an academic, I have not, I've written very few songs. I told you I've written over 500 songs. Yeah. Um, and, and I love songwriting for me is the poetry, right? Now, my my son, Young, uh, who you met, yeah. Young Joseph, he is a, uh, um, a spoken word artist. Okay. And he's really good at putting the words together, and that's his thing. Um, my uh, daughter, uh, Liana, is a um, photographer, and she sees things through that lens that other people don't, incredible things. And my daughter, Skye, Uh, She's been in the past, not recently, but a sculptor and she can, she just makes the most beautiful artwork. And my, my youngest son, Redbird, he has this imagination of building story and putting together table games and, and histories and research and just kind of putting all this together in this fantastic way. Mine is just like the simple, like putting words to a tune, right? I haven't done that in so long, but I've been anticipating it for a couple of years now. And I feel like it's getting closer and closer and I I I um I've been sort of waiting for that time where I can no longer stay away from my guitar and my pen and paper and it just comes busting out of me. So it's this sort of game I'm playing with myself, I guess, is like, Well, when am I gonna do it? You know? Is mm-hmm. it gonna when what when, when months it gonna be? It's gonna happen soon enough. And so, um, you know, if you see me, you know, advertised at the coffee house or at the restaurant playing with my guitar case open, you know, uh-huh. busking, you know, it'll be, uh, that'll, that'll be the, the thing I'm most curious about right now in my own life, mm-hmm. you know, is what's going to happen with this thing that, that I've got, that I've been given and this uh, sort of natural ability to, to put those words and those tunes together and perform in front of people. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to be a star or anything like that. Mm-hmm. I, I want to, interact with people through my music mm-hmm. you know? so yeah
1: oh i love that yeah i mean i i relate to that a hundred percent um what are we doing right
0: after this <laughs> <laughs> i'm not feeling it yet you see i brought the <laughs> oh, guitar you brought your guitar okay yeah yeah, yeah. So, and I'm not that great a musician, really. I mean, that's not the... I actually was a bass player. I don't though. need the There's disclaimer. A, yeah. <laughs> but, but I think I'm a fairly decent songwriter. But um, but I, I haven't picked them up for so long, you know. But I've I've kind of got this list of songs that I keep a running list on my, you know, uh, iPhone of, like, songs I want to learn, right? Yeah. And so I've got this long list going between my computer and my iPhone and all this. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and every now and then I'll print out the, the words and the chords and... And then I'm like, okay, now I got to f- find the time to sit down and practice these, right? Right. And that's the part that I haven't done yet. So, mm-hmm. so you know, if only I could retire this year.
1: Well, sometimes you just have to have the date, like if you sign up at the
0: coffee shop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then it's, the, then forcing, you do it, it's right? the forcing. It's forcing function <laughs> for that. <laughs> yeah. But but that's the thing I'm curious about. That is. Uh, that's neat. Um, well, it's lo- funny too because I mean, nobody knows me as a songwriter, no, at least nobody in the last 20 years. So, um, yeah. Well, maybe we can hear one of those 500 songs today. Probably not. <laughs> oh, come <Okay>. on. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I don't know when we're going to be down here again. Okay. Great. Well, um, is there anything, is there anything, if you've been given 60 seconds to talk to, all of humanity, is there something that
0: you would say? Uh, just the same things I say every day. The stuff we're talking about now. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really concerned about the environment, mm-hmm. uh, the, the earth. Um, I'm concerned about the spirit of humanity. I'm concerned about the, the spirit of fascism sort of uh, rushing across the land and the ignorance of the masses. Mm-hmm. Um, and which uh, apparently uh, Marx is right, you know, religion is the opiate of the people. I mean, you know, there's like 40% of Trump followers who are in, you know, 71% of evangelicals back him. So, yeah, you know, apparently it, that's true. Um, and I'm concerned about that. Mm-hmm. I, I think, you know, what kind of a world are my grandchildren going to grow up in yeah. if this persists, you know? Because um, I felt like the world was kind of getting to be a better place for a while, you know? But... But this this thing that's happening now in in our country in particular, but it's happening in other places in the world as mm-hmm. well, um, is uh, got me real concerned. I'm real concerned that that we're going to end up going to war, and they're going to try and take my sons, and uh, you know, and raise my sons to give themselves for some corporation's best interest. You know, mm-hmm. um, I'm uh, you know, I worry about these things because they are a reality, and I I know that um, uh, you know the. Just like these uh, immigrant children who are coming in, right? You know, the concentration camps didn't begin with the Jews, you know. They began with people who were beginning to be enemies of the state, you know. And then finally it was a a genocidal campaign. And, um, you know, we're on a slippery slope right now um, by allowing this to continue. Um, And if I could, you know, say anything to the world right now, it would be, you know, wake up wake up to the reality of what's really happening here you know however you want to put that you know it's the Truman Show and the set's falling apart right you know it's the you're taking the blue pill you got to stop taking that and take the red pill you know it's Mm -hmm. like we have to begin to question the reality that has been spun as a narrative um, in this country and uh, and actually there are actually some great ideals you know that this country has espoused and uh, if we can admit that we haven't lived up to them and begin anew to begin to live up to them, this would be a wonderful place to live, you know? Mm-hmm. It really would. Um, so so I'm hopeful, but I'm also um, realistic. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: I think that's a great place to wrap it up. Um, if people want to find out more about you, want to read your books, mm-hmm. what's the best place to send people?
0: Okay. Well, um, okay. So, uh, we'll start with the podcast. Um, we just, uh, uh, Bo Sanders and I just started a podcast not too long ago called piecing it together. And it's P E A C I N G piecing it together, piecing it all together. I'm sorry. Piecing it all together. Um, and, um, I think we got 10 episodes uh, done on that. Um, all kinds of topics. Um, uh, I've got a my last book's called Shalom and the Community of Creation and Indigenous Vision. Um, I've got a book called um, uh, Living in Color, Embracing God's Passion for Ethnic Diversity. I have numerous articles and chapters and books and things out there. Um, I just wrote one um, for those who are sort of biblically based people. I just uh, wrote a chapter um, in a, uh, a book called, um, uh, what was it called, like Decolonizing the Word or Unsettling the Word, um, experience in Decolonization. And um, it was put out by the Mennonites in Canada. So I think that's at commonword.ca. Um, I've got a children's book that I'm really proud of called The Harmony Tree. Um, and you can get that on Amazon. Most of my books you can get on Amazon. I've got a, Bo and I have a book coming out uh, probably in the late fall um, that's called uh, Decolonizing Evangelicalism. Mm. Um, and... Uh, yeah, so we've got a website, uh, eagleswingsministry.com, and that's like plural, plural, singular, because there's a lot of Eagles Wings Ministry type people out there. Okay. Uh, so plural, plural, singular. Um, we've got uh, Hay farm.com and Hay seeds.com. If people want to buy seeds from us, we have uh, open pollinated um, heirloom seeds that uh, that we grow and love and we'll send to you. Yeah. Awesome
1: and i'll i'll put all this in the show notes too so okay. uh, people can link and, and find you right away
0: yeah so and and then i wish i kept a calendar um, we're going to be speaking um doing a lecture series up at western theological seminary in late mid late september and we're coming back from that in indiana and in elkhart we're doing uh called rooted and grounded conference it's a eco theology conference and and uh we've got some more stuff coming up. Yeah, can't remember it all, but um you know, I don't travel a lot because as a planter, farmer, you know, you can't be away that long and and uh and, and I like my wife to travel with me whenever we go, so we're we are good friends and companions and we like to travel together. So um so we can't be gone for too long and also I got a full time job as a professor, you know, so mm-hmm. um but every now and then I I go out and I do something here and there. And if
1: people wanted to contact you about speaking somewhere.
0: Yeah, so they could just do um, alahay at gmail.com, and alahay spelled E-L-O-H-E-H, alahay at gmail.com. Tons
1: of gratitude for you, your work, and for this time together. All right, this is fun. Thank you.